Welcome everyone to Two Rivers, Two Takes. I'm Philip. I'm Daryl, and we are here to talk about episode five of the first season. Yes, I have a full page of notes. Uh, we are going pretty much way off book with this episode. Yes, and having come off of an episode that you and I both really liked in the previous one, we come to this one, and I feel like we had a similar reaction of, eh, yeah, it was an episode. It happened. They did some stuff. Yes. Um, on second viewing, I think I have a bit fonder thoughts of some of the episode. The first three quarters, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that There are some definite misses for me. Yes. So we are back after our previous technical difficulties, and we are going through major plot lines. We've got Matt and Rand. We've got Moraine, Nynaeve, and Lan together with the other folks from the Loghain plotline from the previous episode. And then we have Egwene and Perrin. Where would you like to start? Hmm. I mean, there's a lot going on. Let's start with Matt and Rand, because I feel the least amount of development happens there. Yes. Although we meet a fan-favorite character. And, and by fan-favorite, I mean yeah. one of my favorites. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we get a sense that Matt is becoming more and more corrupted by the Shadar Logoth evil. Yeah, he, in the dagger. he's looking real crusty. Yeah, it's... Pale is not a word I would use to describe Matt right now. No, he's, um, he's a particular shade of gray. Yes. Um, which is not what you want to look like. No, not one of the appealing Fifty Shades. No, and, um, by the way, between last episode and this episode, a whole month has passed. So yeah. everyone's been on the road for a month. We get the burial shot for the folks who perished in the confrontation in the last episode. And that area seems to have gotten the Minnesota treatment, where you think it's spring, there's no more snow, and then the weather's like, just kidding, and it drops a whole bunch more. Yeah, so R.I.P. in pieces to everyone who was buried in that circle. Karini Sadai, the King of Geldan. And everyone else. And the others. <laughs> and the others. It's like Gilligan's Isle. <laughs> we'll just lump the Professor Marianne yeah. together. Everyone else. So we get that scene, we get... We get some nice votive candles placed on the bodies, too. Like, we're going to cover you with a sheet and place a nice candle that we got on clearance after the holiday season from Walgreens. Like, went down to the corner drugstore. There were a few cases. They were 39 cents each. And I feel like we talked about this last time, that the ASDI travel well. Like, they've got... They had votives. I mean, <laughs> who... What border has the sack of candle holders? Unknown. Uh, or the can. Uh, do you think these candles had a scent? Like, I love a good scented candle. Do you think that it was like maybe some myrrh? I mean, okay. For given their use, that would be the most appropriate. So something musky to cover up the rot stench. I mean, it was traditionally used in burial things. So we. So <laughs> one warder had a sack of votive candle holders. Probably wrapped so they wouldn't, you know, get like, dinged up. Um, and another one had a sack full of myrrh candles. No. Just in case. <laughs> so we get this scene, and folks are having feelings, and magically it turns into one month later. And points to the show for showing the one month later. Both Rand and Perrin have visibly longer hair. Yeah. Woolier, if, in Rand's case, if you pardon the pun. Yes. And so when Matt and Rand come within view of Tara Valan, it's interesting that, or it was a good choice, I should say, where their first view is not of the city itself, but of Dragon Mount, which is where the dragon from the Age of Legends perished. Yeah, he died there and in his death created the volcano. This like, giant volcano. Yeah, he, in the throes of madness, had killed his family and friends, and when Ishamiel, the leader of the Forsaken, basically showed up and was like, 
dude, what did you even do? Like, I was here to gloat, but I can't even gloat because you are so far in the throes of madness. You're that so you, crazy. That you did this. Yeah. So he heals Luce Theron. Luce Theron, like, basically realizes what he's done. He travels to this remote area and pulls down so much fire over himself that it creates this very large volcano in an area that should not be volcanically active. And it's still active. Yeah, you, you can, can see in the background, there is some lava flowing. It's very true. There's an orange glow from the top of that mountain. But that's where the first view of it is for these characters. Yeah, so Matt and Rand are like, look at this volcano. They don't see the city first. They see this basic monument to the guy who broke the world. Right, which stands in fairly stark contrast with the other two groups slash plot lines that we have where their first view is the white tower the seat of the current asadi power in the world and it wasn't a coincidence that they founded the city so close to dragon mount but we don't get that context yet in the show but it's a nice touch that matt and rand with all these suspicions floating in rand's head that matt might be able to channel that's their first sight rather than the white tower and I think it's good when we're talking about the one-month skip ahead. I think this show learned a lot from Game of Thrones. Because Game of Thrones, in the earlier seasons, tried showing all of the traveling. And oh. I think they realized halfway or three-quarters through that they couldn't progress the story as much because they were spending too much time on the road. So mm -hmm. then they sped it up, and all of a sudden, in Game of Thrones, you had... People traveling hundreds of miles within one episode, whereas that would never have happened in earlier seasons. I mean, they discovered that fast travel ability on the world map to a place they've already <laughs> discovered, just like Skyrim. Yeah. So I think this show did a good thing in acknowledging that it was a time progression, but also, like you said, physically showing that the characters haven't had a haircut for a while. Yes. And look more worn and things like that. So that it's believable, but we don't need to necessarily see that they have spent a month walking and then sleeping in haystacks. Yeah, which makes sense with all the con condensation of events that have happened in the TV show. Like, Robert Jordan spends a lot of time and a lot of pages on the travels, and the show has been able to pick parts of those that are important, create a new scenario with those elements, and allow a month of transition to happen. Yeah, it's very clever. Um, I'm in favor of it because honestly, those pages were it, lengthy. Yes, and they already in the last episode, they hit one of those beats with the farm. We got to see what an experience was at one farm in their travels. And we can extrapolate from there what yes. the past month has been. Exactly. So they get to Tarvalon, they find an inn, and Rand drops this line of Rand having talked to Tom and knows about a certain inn, which the show is basically replacing Camelin with Tarvalon and the events that happened in the book there. Yeah. So in the books, Moraine has a connection with this innkeeper because she's a blue. She has friends, lots of places. And in exchange for warding the inn against rats, she can basically stay for free. And that's how, when the disparate groups come together, they all know to go to this one inn because she had already explained that to them. Um, but instead, we get Tom's recommendation to Rand for this inn that's so expensive, but also large city prices compared to the Wine Spring Inn. Yes, I think we experienced that coming from the Midwest and then going to either coast. It's, it's just... true. <laughs> Um, so those of you on the East and West Coast of the United States, um, RIP to your wallets, because um, you could live in such a bigger place in Minnesota, but then you get that debate, do you want to live in Minnesota? So yeah. um, there, there are arguments on both sides, but I could really empathize with them saying we could have a whole month at the inn back home for this price. Yes. Rand finds his way to the library where he picks up a book that just happens to be all about the dragon prophecies. I'm just going to say that the pattern wanted him to pick up that book. Yes. 
And that's my explanation for this serendipitous choice. Um, we also get a nice interaction with Loyal and Ogier, who I, he would probably correct my pronunciation, but it's so exciting to see him. He is done up, maybe not quite how I had built him up in my imagination. Like, I don't know if his eyebrows and ear tufts are as expressive as they could be in the books, but it was nice to see him and get the whole Ogier, like, very studious, very preparation-focused, and not to make haste, because that makes waste. And they made the character design different enough, where you know it's not human. Yes. It's definitely different. And I really am looking forward to them exploring the Ogier culture a bit more, why a steading is important and why they all live on steadings. Yeah, so um, it was fun to see this new character introduced. Those of us who have read the books, I can't, I mean, I'm still on book one, so I can't say I'm an expert, but I knew he'd show up at some point. I hope that people who aren't as familiar with the source material were pleasantly surprised that a new character who's so different was being introduced halfway through the season. Yes, and I hope that everyone... Loves him as much as I love him. Because <laughs> he's so fun and just all about his books and chronicling things and vaguely sheepish about certain stuff. Um, don't ask him his age. <laughs> but also he has all sorts of talents. Like he can do the whole singing to trees thing and the tree will donate some of itself or whatever it is. Like he can, he gets a sung wood walking staff the bed in the inn, well, in the book at least, is from Sungwood. And he's just so excited about finding these little details. Yeah. His introduction to the city, though, didn't sound smooth. Like, of all the cities in this world that an ogre should be welcomed and not chased with knives across the city, it should have been Tarvalin. Like, yeah. Those folks should have known better. Yeah, in general, I feel that culture is a bit more understanding and embraces diversity so because it pulls people from all over this world together into one city with the Aya Sedai and you yeah. can tell with the outfits and the trade like in the background as Matt and Rand walked through it that it should be more cosmopolitan and more welcoming yeah it it struck me as odd this is a transposition from the book though where but the where it scene should be Camelin, and it, it was Camelin before so I'm, yeah, I, I wish he would have described, like, I've been to other cities and this was the reaction, rather than when I came to this city. Right. And one of the sort of points of pride for folks who live in Tarvalon is that it's a beautiful city. That the Ogier had constructed it, and the houses are supposed to look like waves and seashells and flow with the path of the land, rather than transform the land around a house. It's like the house is a part of the landscape mm -hmm. with very natural curves and shapes and seashell things. And so they would have known that the city was Ogier designed. The tower was Ogier designed and built, which is why it's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, and they should not have chased them around. So that was my thing. But it's just so exciting to see Loyal. And he had a whole thing about Jane Farstrider, which is one of the, like, common books. Mm -hmm. He called it a first-class adventure. <laughs> um, and it's one of those things that, like... Everyone in this world is aware of that story. Yes. Either between Gleam and singing it, or if you're lucky enough to have a book, chances are that book is Jane Farstrider. Who... I don't think this is a spoiler, but I'm going to say it anyway. Who is still alive. Oh. How fun. So, uh, before we get any further in the, our reactions, they did cut out a significant portion of the book. Um, this was basically fast-tracking our characters to be back together again. Because they will be. They didn't all meet up this episode. They're in the same vicinity right now. Yes. And um, it, it cuts out a big portion where they are supposed to be way far up north, um, near something called the Waste, and there, there was a, a lot of um, secondary characters that were introduced through that, and 
a pretty big um, secondary character that was sort of a myth and things like that. I'm not going to say anything because who knows if they'll bring it up again. But they did sew this up very cleanly. Um, the reunion. Yes. And everything relating to that. like I think what you're alluding to will happen, just not yet. And all the signposts that directed the characters to this mythological location haven't happened yet. And they were starting to pick up clues in the books by this point, where there were several, like, not news stories, but like, pieces of news or rumors that Moraine hears that she sort of pulls it together but like the pattern is pointing us in this direction this is where we need to go and this is where we need to like sort of bypass Tarvalon so in the books yes. when they're in Camelin instead of Tarvalon they just bypass that entire section of the world to go to this mythological place yes and in this point they're in Tarvalon which carries with it all the Ajas the politicking we get a great scene with Moraine and Nynaeve after Lan has been sent outside because the women need to talk business. <laughs> and she's like, all the women here have had decades honing their strengths, hiding their weaknesses, everyone with their own agenda. So in the books, it worked out really well that they bypassed Tarvalon. Yes. So it sets up a new conflict where they have to somehow deal with the politics of the city and somehow extricate themselves from it if they want to go anywhere else. Yep. Which may be in their best interest, considering one of them, possibly a guy, can channel, and the Reds would not like that. So, that's Mand... Mand. <laughs> that's their couple name. <laughs> Mand. Brand and Matt, uh, and where we get them. And Loyal. Yeah, the only other note, they do see... Um... Loghain is brought back. Oh, we the see the Dragon Parade. Yes. So we see Matt sort of having a vision or he has some a hallucination. Eye with Loghain. Yeah. And he sees Loghain acting in a matter which he doesn't. So it's the, the creepy, crazy laugh. Yeah. yeah. Like, I've lost my mind, therefore everything is funny. And Matt sees it and is like, I don't want to end that way. He makes. Rand promised possibly to end him if it does turn out to be him who can channel prophecies be damned. He does not want to turn out that way. And Rand then asks Matt for that same promise. So that's where we get them for now. Yep, they are just chilling at their inn with lots of books and loyal yes. no gear. We get... Folks back at the tower, we get Moraine, Lan, and Nynaeve, plus the others, such as Leandrin. And we get a good conversation between, um, is it Alana who mentions that, or Leandrin, that Moraine has been out of the tower? It's Leandrin. Leandrin. Because she's being all bishy and sort of... She's like, oh, do you even know the way to your rooms after two years? Like, do you even live here? <laughs> and earlier in the ride, as they're moving towards the city... Lan asks, does it feel good to be home again? And Moraine is like, I don't feel at home there. I feel more at home on this horse. Next to you, riding around. Yeah. Like, they have spent that much time outside the tower. Contrast that with, like, these browns that never leave the tower and, like, barely even leave the library. Yeah. And so you get sort of this range. I mean, that's not referenced in the show. That's just part of the lore in the books. Um, like, Varen sort of stands out as a brown who leaves the tower to do her own research. And it's a nice um, spectrum that I that's set up that I said I can either stay there forever and never leave or be out in the world. Yeah. And, and then it's odd to be out in the world for that long. Yes, even. that's what this conversation really establishes, that it is very odd that Moraine was gone for two years because... The inference is that no one is gone from the tower that long. Yes. We got that also when we see Moraine's quarters. She and Lan, and then later she and Alana. And there's just not much in there. Like, it's a pretty stark room. 
both her little seating area with Lan and the bedchamber where she and Alana are relaxing and having one of those persimmons. <laughs> well, they're they're in season right now. <laughs> they are. Oh, that, that little snicker. Yeah, that giggle of Leandrin's. So that was from the Leandrin conversation um, with Nynaeve when Nynaeve goes out to explore a little. And Leandrin provides some context for Warder slightly, a little bit more about the Reds, and sort of tries to stick it to Moraine by encouraging Nynaeve to leave her the room that Moraine had hit her in. Mm-hmm. So she's like, that way it's the library, and then there's the gardens. Oh, and the persimmons are in season. <laughs> it's yeah. Fleetwood has done very good yeah, with Leandrin. She, Leandrin was so fake. Yeah. So fake. Um, and also in this portion, we see a lot of border stuff, like border world building is happening here. Right, which isn't a thing in the books, which is curious that they have made it a thing and inserted it into the show. Do you think it was necessary? I don't. And it's a double down on sort of veering away from... The canon idea that when a warder loses their ASDI, they don't survive long. They go full beast mode, berserker, and usually don't last past that moment in battle. Mm-hmm. And this time we have Stepin going a month without Karini. And did is he hanging on so long because he wanted to return her ring to the tower mm. in that weird ceremony? Maybe. And it wasn't even a ceremony. He just wanders up to this big fire that has a lot of molten gold. And like Ivan and Maxim, Alana's warders, get him dressed for that and try to like comfort him to some extent. But it doesn't seem necessary for the storytelling. I feel like the conversation with Moraine and Alana of... I've been thinking about transferring the bond. Should anything happen to me, Lan will go automatically to another sister or even just dissolving the bond. Yeah. I think I might be adding in the automatic transfer, which is a thing. But maybe for the show, they'll make it more theoretical. Yeah, it's a lot of storytelling. I don't necessarily think we needed. This is going pretty far astray from the main narratives. I mean, there are multiple main storylines. And I this didn't give us any new stakes. Um, it didn't raise any stakes that were currently there. It shows a more human side, I guess, to both Moraine and Lan. That they're not just one-dimensional people. But we already saw that in past episodes. They already right. gave them depth. So this isn't adding more that I needed as a fan. Could it be that they want to make sure that background sit things later on when there are grander things happening, that we don't lose sight of the connection with the bond? That's the only thing I can think of why they would go through such lengths to highlight this. They spent one whole episode, basically reinforcing it yeah i would say it's the primary focus of this episode where um there may have been more interesting things happening yeah so it i some of the scenes were good some of them were just boring on our second walk through or watch through i found myself getting to my phone and checking instagram and stuff because it just drags yeah the exciting parts, I think, for this plotline are the conversations with Moraine and Leandrin about being out so far from home. Somehow, Moraine has eyes and ears watching the gates, which I feel blues are more concerned with outside Tarvalon causes and things. Like, when they talk about the pigeons carrying messages to and from Tarvalon, mm-hmm. they come from all over the place. That for someone being outside the tower for so long, I have a hard time believing that Moraine still has enough connections at the gate houses and the watchtowers to find the two rivers folk. Yeah. Although there are, I don't know, maybe there are some like general all blue Aja alerts that yeah, they I, can do. I think they do have a network. Yeah, like the official blue network and then yeah. each Aes Sedai has their own person with individual what? network. Yes. 
um, and uh, I wasn't bored by those parts. I no. love the Aes Sedai stuff, and it adds so much to my enjoyment of the series. It was the Warder stuff, and yeah, um, and then we see Stepan commit suicide. And I don't remember seeing like any sort of content warning for that, which might no. have taken some folks by surprise. Yeah. Um, Nor the resources afterwards for someone dealing with yeah. a lot of pain to maybe not do that. Yeah. And usually we do see that. And I really do appreciate when shows are upfront about trigger warnings like that. And, and provide the resources yes. at the end of the episode of like, if you know someone or if you yourself are feeling this way, here are some resources. Like, here's NAMI, here's a Trevor hotline. Yes. Like, all the things. Um, so, uh, that part, and the way we ended the episode, um, with just Lan being like, Aah! and beating his chest and tearing his clothes off and everything, it, it was a little much for me. Especially because, up until now, they've built Lan up in terms of being very stoic, and even though he can have these more tender moments or funny moments, that he's still very taciturn, um, well-composed. To see him lose control like this is strange. Mm -hmm. Both how they built up the character in the show and then also in the books where you get more of his backstory and how much loss that he's endured. That yeah. losing... A friend. A friend, coworker, mentor. I don't know how deep their relationship like they were clearly close but I don't I didn't get the sense for why it would be so much more important than any of the other losses he's mm -hmm. weathered and why he would be so emotive yeah it and it, we didn't get a clear sense either from where Stevan was from we could pick out that Karini was from the borderlands because the little prayer that Moraine says may the embrace of the mother welcome you home that's a very Shinar thing Mm. which is currently a borderlander. It wasn't as much when Malkir was a country, but that was a tradition for that country in the far northeast of this world. Um, but we don't necessarily get a placement for Stefan or why this ceremony was happening. Yeah, um, we do want to highlight the other two borders. We have names because we paused on Amazon. So we have Maxim and Yvonne. Alana's two warders. Yes. Who seem more lighthearted, and it sort of fits with Green's being a little bit more free-spirited, and Alana in particular being more feisty than the typical, like, serene ASDI walking down the hall. Um, where they're a little bit more informal and still take fulfill their obligation as warders, and like we saw that in the battle scene, they're very good at what they do. Yeah. Um, but we... I like them. They seem awesome. Yeah. And, and the idea of having queer characters that they're not killing off right away. Yeah. It's so nice. It is. I think it it's important to note that the Emerlin seat is currently out of office. She has her <laughs> her auto response up and she is not in Tarvalon right now. Which is weird. In the books, they're like She never leaves. She, exactly. It's because there's so much politicking and with the Ajas vying for Who's in, who wields more influence, which is also why we get that aside with Leandrin and Moraine of how the Yellows will want to get their hands all over Nynaeve. Mm -hmm. Because having an initiate of that strength will add more clout to that Aja. And there's no doubt that Nynaeve is going to be a Yellow. When healing is their whole focus, she's a shoe-in. There's no way she would choose anything else. Yeah, so... Um, the Amerlin never really leaves because the Maxim, uh, not, not Maxim, the hot warder, but the Maxim of when uh, the cat's away, the mice will play. Very much applies to uh, the whole Aes Sedai situation. So the Amerlin seat really sticks around to keep everyone in line because when she leaves, that's when more intrigues happen. And norm it sounds like the Amerlin needs to rein in the Hall of the Tower. And if she's not there, the sitters in the hall can... The representatives from each Aja are yes. sitters. So there are three per Aja that represent all of their similarly Interests. colored sisters. <laughs> so, like, there are three reds, there are three greens, there are three blues that sit there 
and are like the council. Yes, the legislative body. Yep. Versus the Amelon, who's the executive. So, and, and we hear that Leandrin is getting a whole lot of support in the tower and not just from Reds. She's running around doing some politicking. Yeah. Which Leandrin's the worst, so. <laughs> Naturally. Yes. And somehow Alana says that Moraine can challenge. It sounded like either the Amelin or Leandrin because of how strong she is. And I don't know if that's a strength of power, which we. We know she's a strong. We learned from the, Yes. One of the strongest. Yes. And we learned from the books that in social situations, the Aes Sedai will arrange themselves by strength. So the strongest takes primary for conversations, and then the weakest usually ends up serving tea or like doing more menial things. Like it's expected that they will follow the lead of the stronger Aes Sedai, which I'm glad will gets called out in the books, and I'm looking forward to that being called out in the show. Um, we also get a good convo between Moraine and Nynaeve, where it's sort of like, it's that women getting down to business, land leave the room. Mm -hmm. Because when Moraine is talking about how when you touch the power, you feel how small you are in comparison. Like, some of the metaphors are an Aesodai is a water wheel and the power, the source is a river. Like, you can't, one person can't use it up. You can just hope to get a little bit of it. And not only that, but how much greater you are to who you were mm. and the people around you. And this dichotomy of at once feeling very small and then also very great. And where do you fit in? Can you even go home again? And the answer is going to be no. Um, yeah. It's sort of a foregone conclusion that the characters sort of make a point of saying out loud that Nynaeve will become a novice. And, I mean, the fact that she hasn't already been fitted for novice robes is sort of surprising. And we do see our first glimpse of perhaps some accepted in the tower. We don't know, but it it looked like they had seven white bands going up their arms. Yes. Rather than having seven colors on their hem. Right. And that's, which would be the book um, descriptor of an accepted outfit. Like, novices get pure white outfits accepted once they've passed their test and they can start to have a little bit more latitude in their studies get the seven bands at the ends of their garments and then when you're in ASA you can wear whatever you want which in the show they wear their color yes which is helpful helpful for the viewer yeah it is and so is there anything else happening at the tower I think we sort of covered everything yeah. it there were those great conversations between these women that were just so good and that those were the highlights of this episode for me. Yep. Um, so we basically leave everyone being sad at the tower. That's where we leave them at the end of this episode and we'll see what happens. I think the Amberlyn's probably going to show up next episode. I hope so. She is one of my favorites, but I mean, Baron, obviously. And maybe one. we'll see. We haven't really seen... Aside from the yellow, who got her hands cut off and burned at the stake, oh. we haven't seen anyone aside from blue, green, or red. Right. We haven't seen white, or gray. brown, or brown. gray. Yeah. So. Uh, or really a yellow with speaking lines. Yeah. So those sort of personality traits, like the very studious browns, the very diplomatic grays, the very logical whites... Um, I wonder if they'll even get to that this season. I hope they do, because... Uh, it might be a throwaway line if there's some... We know that there's some sort of tower action, because in the trailer we see them, and it looks beautiful. Like, the architecture, the setup, the way that their costume colors stand out against the stone. Like, it looks very good. But I can see a throwaway line of a gray being like, let's search for consensus. Or a white being like, that is illogical. Yes, very, very Vulcan. Vulcan. <laughs> oh, if we get, like, a lady Vulcan up in there. I mean, they'll probably have a better haircut than Vulcans and Romulans get in Trek. That's true. Although it's not difficult. Um, and speaking of Star Trek characters, Loyal is a little bit of a data. Loyal, like, 
loves his fun facts and will just go off on them. He's like, hair color is one of the few physical attributes where you can tell where a human is from. And, oh, you must be an ailment. Oh, you're an ailment from the two rivers. Oh, you're an ailment from the two rivers who says he is not an ailment. And, like, <laughs> and even when he brings Nynaeve to Rand because he ran into her in the gardens, he's like, a braid is a symbol of the rite of passage for <laughs> several cultures. And, like, in the background is just reciting these facts. I mean, not to gloss over the fact that he finds Nynaeve um, and brings her to Matt and Rand. Yeah, and, I mean, she sees that Matt is in rough shape. It's hard to not see that. It's true. <laughs> you, you may have issues if you haven't noticed how touchy he is, how jumpy. How pasty. How pasty. <laughs> um, she and Rand have a nice conversation about, like, they're two rivers folks. They'll figure it out. They She recognizes that there's some level of danger for being in Tar Valen, despite all the talk of this is where we need to go to be safe. And when they bring up Egwene, she has a story, which is somewhat true to the books. Um, Age-wise, there's a little bit of a difference, because in the books, Nynaeve uses the power to heal Perrin and Egwene, who has this disease. But in the show, it's Egwene when she's smaller, the wisdom is at a loss. The previous wisdom is at a loss. It can only ease the passing. But Egwene stays... She doesn't. She refuses the tea. She waits it out, and the fever breaks. And Nynaeve says, "Egwene is unbreakable," which is a nice transition to where we find her, because she and Perrin had been with the Tinkers. Yep. They were within sight of the tower. They're and, like, "Oh, look, the tower!" And then, and we're so close. It's like Jennifer Connelly in Labyrinth saying, "This is a piece of cake." Like you don't say that because yeah. something will happen. Yeah. And it does in the form of white cloaks. Even Velda has followed them, or just through random happenstance, um, come across the Tinkers. He recognizes Egwene and Perrin because he never forgets a face. And we get a sight of resisting in a completely pacifist, nonviolent way. They link arms to try and prevent the White Cloaks from taking Perrin and Egwene. And then they get the crap punched out of them. Aram makes a comment that even a White Cloak won't kill a Tuatha'an. Which is great. Yeah, because the White Cloaks clearly have no scruples. Um, honestly, if you were a Dark Fiend, it would be fairly easy to masquerade as a White Cloak because they are so callously cruel. Yeah. As evidenced by Eamon Valda, one of the questioners. In the books, you get like a little bit of tension between the regular White Cloaks and the questioners. The Bornhald, the very stately-looking daddy in the second episode, gets a lot more airtime in the books than Eamon Valda, who has this, like, rabid look in his eyes, even. And we see that when he's captured Egwene and Perrin. Huh? Egwene gets all cleaned up, but Perrin does not. She's cleaned up and stabbed to a chair with bloody ropes that have been used on a previous woman who can channel. And he's like, you need to channel or, and then I'll kill you and let your friend go. Or if you can't channel, then I'll kill your friend and let you go. And a, a good point about the hands is that we talked about this in an earlier episode where do they need to do hand movements? What's with all these hand movements? Why do they place the importance on cutting off the hands? And then he's like, oh, well, you know, I had another sister in here, and she admitted that they don't need to use their hands. That it's a crutch. That, that it's a crutch. And then why are you chopping off hands? It, it's, so I mean, it's cruel. Yes. It, I think he's doing it just for that. Um, or maybe he does it and then makes them channel. I don't know. He's real twisted. I do have, I don't know if it's Hole. I don't think it is. They might explain it later. Why does he assume that she is a woman who can channel? Has he never run across the same two people traveling together in different company ever? It's it's weird that he automatically assumes that it's an Aes Sedai and her warder, and he needs to bring them in. It, because if he had those suspicions about Moraine and Lan, like what's a borderlander doing with a Carahian and woman? in the backwoods of Andor. Like, those facts 
in that second episode should have led him to be more suspicious if he had them. Yes. But maybe running... I don't know. If, it, because... if he had those and didn't voice them, then it's a surprise to us why he's like, oh, if you were with this person I think might have been ASDI, then you must be able to, cha- able to channel like... She- yeah. The blue was picking up a novice. Yes. And that's why he was so interested in her being able to channel. Yeah, it, it struck me as very odd that he just jumped to this and was let, ready to murder. Yeah. Just a random woman and man who are traveling together. I mean, it's, for them to do that in Amadisia, the country in the far southwest, where the White Cloaks are sort of based, they have the... There's like a puppet government with a monarchy, but the White Cloaks are in charge. They also seems very Puritan, side note. Um, For them to do that there would make sense, but for them to do that within sight of the tower is bold. bold. Yeah. Um, And in one of the books, one of the earlier books, they are right there, right by Harvalon. And accosting Varen and some others, and Varen's like, I got this. Like, you boys run along home. Like, you're clearly making a poor choice if you're trying to stop a sister within sight of the White Tower. And then there's channeling and everything, but they get away. And right, and unnecessary channeling. Like, yes. Marin had it in hand. And a couple of the other characters went off on their own and were channeling, and then they got punished for it once they got to the tower. Um, it, yeah, something about the setup for this situation. I get why they wanted... To bring in the bad for this episode. Um, and it gives a way for Perrin... If they're not doing Hopper and Elias with Perrin's wolf brother nature, it's a way for Perrin to reach out to the wolves because he's being tortured, basically, by the White Cloaks. Yes. And instinctively, like, his eyes turn yellow. And we see that when Egwene and Perrin are able to make their escape, they wound Eamon Valda... And the wolves and they are... should have finished the job, by the way. <laughs> Just, I have seen enough horror movies, you always make sure <laughs> that the evil person is dead. For sure. All she did, she did stab him deep. I mean, but not in a crucial area. Right. So they run out of the tent, and it's pandemonium because wolves are attacking. Uh, we see the twink, white cloak, just get mauled. Yeah, I, I mean, R.I.P. But also, <laughs> you were a bad person, so I can't feel too bad. Exactly. And so they make their escape. Um, and that's sort of where those two are left. Like, they're within sight of the tower. They've just fled this White Cloak camp. And hopefully they can make it in. Egwene does the brilliant move of stealing the rings that even Velda had collected because he's a serial killer and yeah. his mementos, and she steals them. Uh, yeah, there's enough true crime documentaries out there. I yeah. mean, we know what type of person he is. But it's so smart for a woman who can channel to steal these rings to be able to go to the city and be like, I need access to the tower. Like, Jingle, 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 let me in. Here's this story. Yep. So, that was good. Um... So yeah, that's where the other plot lines wrap up, and then we were left with the water ceremonies. Yeah, which, I mean, we already sort of covered that. Yeah, it's unnecessary. And with the bond and land emoting, and it was so much for even Moraine um, to contain. Yeah, and um, we saw a preview of her crying, land screaming. That was in the promotional packages for this season. And honestly, I thought that was like a flashback. Yeah, I didn't see it coming into play with the present-day storylines. Yeah. I will say, Alana wearing her bracers, like the little wrist guard things, Mm -hmm. underneath the white outfit for the ceremony, like, that's just such a green thing of, like... It's a nice touch. Yeah. And those look nice. Like, those are some leveled up armor perks yeah. that she's accumulated. Yes, it is. Um, next episode, I think it's going to be a good one. This, and I've described it this way in conversation since I first watched the episode on Friday. This is a middle of the season episode. This is... It's not quite a bottle episode. Yeah, it 
It advances storylines a smidgen. It's more about world building. Um, well, the latter, latter half. Like, they do need to get Matt and Rand into the city with everyone yes. else. And to meet Loyal. Yeah. And for Perrin to have some connection with wolves. So it does, it performs those things. Yep. But then you still have another corner of an episode of... It's filler. It felt like filler to me. Yeah. And it, maybe it will be important down the line. I don't know how it can be right now, if I'm being totally honest. But, yeah. I mean... It wasn't a bad episode, but compared, just like you said, to the previous one, where we ate episode four up, we could not wait to watch it again. Yeah. And I've watched it even, I've watched that episode at least three times, if not four, since it came out. So this one, I don't think I need to revisit again. And if I'm doing a marathon to binge everything before season two... I don't know if I need to watch it even then to refresh my memory. You can read the synopsis online and basically understand what's happening. Yeah. And not need to see it. I feel like my woolhead moment is for the water ceremony. Like, mm. land being so emotive, which is counter to the character that they've built up so far. And the book that, the character that we know... Um, from the books, too. It just seems very out of place. Um, points for Leandra, though. Like, still so heavy-handed. So backhanded. Yeah, she's not... I. It's so amazing the, that she is building a coalition because she is not suave. No. She... Uh, what is she doing to get people on her side? Hey, are, are you a piece of crap like me? <laughs> we should all band together. Yeah. It's... I don't see the finesse with her politicking. No, which is on board for Red. On brand for Reds, I should say. But yeah, that's the counterpoint to my woolhead moment is my real serpent. I don't know what sort of name we'll have for our excellent moments or excellent characters. Mm -hmm. But those are that's my point and counterpoint. I think my woolhead of the week is Child Valda. And what an idiot. A cruel idiot, but come on, just even if you're capturing an Aes Sedai with her warder, what do you expect to happen? I mean, if he thought, truly thought she was a sister who was just hiding her ring like Moraine mm -hmm. did, he had to know that something like this would happen. And yes, there was a wolf attack, but Aes Sedai can do a whole lot without notifying anyone outside that tent that something's going on. And we know that they can ward against sounds escaping, so, like, yeah, it wouldn't be anything. I mean, granted, Perrin was screaming, so people should have heard something. Yeah. Um, it was a really funny moment where Egwene throws a fireball, and it's a little tiny thing, and it doesn't even singe even Child Valda's white vestments. Yeah. Um, but she's... I, the I, idea that he got so freaked out after Perrin bonds were burned for, yeah. away, and he stood up and he was so freaked out, like... What do you expect? Yeah. You captured a magical being, I mean... And if you have experience capturing magical entities, you shouldn't be that free, frozen in the moment. Yeah. So. Uh, because of all those rings he's captured, I'm sure all of them fought back in one way or another. And Yeah. The yellow didn't... We don't know if she had a warder. Yeah. I think there was a white ring in there. Mm. They normally don't have warders, but they also probably don't leave the tower very much. Yeah, it... I didn't necessarily agree with the motivations there. So, he's my woolhead of the week. Do you have a counterpoint to Um... To that moment? I really like the tower stuff, too. Uh, especially the conversations between the Aes Sedai. They really did a lot to build out that world because it's going to be so important to next, not only this season, but all the coming seasons. And the next episode, even. Yeah. So deepening the viewer's understanding of who they are, what's motivating them, what is the norm being in the tower versus the unique or abnormal being outside the tower for years at a time. Right. Not even in an official advisor yeah, which that will come up probably next season. We'll see mm -hmm. an Aes Sedai in that capacity. 
And uh, they allude to either rulers having an overt advisor or one from behind the scenes. So they're still, even if they're not supposed to, and they might lose credibility by having an advisor, they still have one. And not to keep this going too long, but you're right. The conversations are, are so good. And the distinction, the juxtaposition between like, Leandrin fixing Moraine's hair and everyone just cringing or just like, ew, yeah, bad touch, bad yeah, touch. No, thank you. <laughs> and Moraine and Alana reclining on a bed eating a snack together. Yeah. And what's in that art above the fireplace? Yeah, what did Moraine open up there? We couldn't tell if it was a cavity, if it was just a piece of art. Yeah. Do we get the background for how she's on this mission that she didn't choose since that was part of the trailer? So... Do we get some other exposition? I think we do, because if the Amarillin is coming back and other Aesidae believe that Shawan Sanch and Moraine don't get along, I want them to have the, like, we will speak in my chambers. And then they can be friends, and then Moraine has to look contrite as she leaves and, like, trying to put on a face of... Yeah. After being talked down. Yep. All right, so everyone, follow us on Instagram. We're at Two Rivers Two Takes. Um, Drop a comment. What are your woolhead moments? What should we name the moments that we think are so good? Yeah, we are open to suggestions. Yes. Um, uh, Please go ahead, subscribe to this on your preferred podcast um, platform. Platform, there we go. And make sure to review us. We love some positive reviews. And tell your friends. I think that this series, like I said last episode, it's the number one streaming series right now. So tell your friends all about this show. Not only this show that you're listening to right now, but Wheel of Time. Let's keep this forward momentum going and see where we are next week. Take care. Bye.